turn, if you will, to our master text this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. And we're going to be continuing talking about uh, building a firm foundation, which is uh, the name of the series that I began several weeks ago, where we were looking at Hebrews chapter 6, and we will turn to that again after our master text is read. But we've been talking about some very basic doctrines that the writer of Hebrews says we cannot go on to maturity until we master these doctrines. So as we prepare to talk about today's doctrine that uh, is highlighted there in Hebrews chapter 6, as we prepare to read our master text in 1 Corinthians 15, let's stand up and honor the reading of the Word of God. And we'll read verses 12 through, it's going to be a little bit longer reading this morning, 12 through 23, and then verses 42 through 44. So I'm, I'm setting a, laying a foundation for this teaching. Verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He has raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him, in fact, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ are lost." If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Let's skip down to verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's talking about uh, death there. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. Well, once again, uh, we're talking about going on to maturity by first mastering the basics. And let me refer back to the master text for this whole series which is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. So let's look at that again. Uh, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, or some versions say perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. We talked about that already. And faith in God. Instruction about baptisms and the laying on of hands, which we covered last week. The resurrection of the dead, that's highlighted because we're covering that today, and eternal judgment. All right? So, again, today's topic of those is the resurrection of the dead. So, this is a basic foundational doctrine that we need to master 
if we are to go on to maturity. Now, in my time as a pastor, I've had the privilege of preaching three different funerals. And in two of the three, the person who had died, I knew was with the Lord. And, you know, those are easy funerals to preach because uh, I have assurance that the deceased is in heaven. And more importantly, the family members have that assurance that the uh, deceased is in heaven. And uh, therefore, they know and I know that the death of this person is not final. But the other funeral I preached was of a young man who died of a drug overdose. I think he was... 28 years old, something like that. And it was a very difficult task for me to try to conduct a funeral for a young man who uh, I really had no idea where his eternal soul was now residing. The only thing that I could do was preach Christ to the living and help the living to understand the brevity of this life and the finality of death and to make sure that they knew where their eternal destiny would be before they died. And in those different settings, I've observed that uh, the, the family members of the, uh, the deceased and those that they knew that their family member had gone on to be with the Lord was, in fact, with the Lord. I've observed in those different settings that when the deceased has a relationship with the Lord and the, the, the family has a relationship with God, um, that there's hope in those kinds of settings. Yeah. But when I did that funeral for the young man who died of a drug overdose, and, and it just looked like to me from the conversations that I had among some of those folks that there was no such hope. So I think that's maybe par for the course with families where Jesus has not been the center. And Jesus was not at the center of the deceased. There is no such hope, or at least very little of it in those kinds of settings. You know, when my mother-in-law, Wilma Gay, passed from this life about uh, this time last year, although her loss was a crushing blow for those of us that uh, knew her because she was so loved, nevertheless, there is great comfort in knowing where she is right now Amen. and that we will see her again. Yes. And that takes some of the sting out of the passing of a loved one, wouldn't you say? You see, according to our master text that we just read, although the loved ones that we have buried, um, who we know are with Christ, were, quote, sown in weakness. You remember reading that? They were sown in weakness. They will nevertheless be raised in power. Praise God. So one day in the future, we will have a glorious reunion with Wilma and all of those who have gone before us. And this is an amazing truth, by the way, that is absolutely fundamental to our faith because our faith is securely rooted in a firm belief in the resurrection of the dead. So a key concept for this morning is this. For those firmly rooted in Christ, death is not something that we need to fear. And I know that this is a real basic teaching this morning. Probably most of you are already on board with this. But once again, we have to kind of sometimes go back and, and uh, firm up that foundation. Because I find that so often we like to go on to the deeper things of God. And, and we, we move so fast beyond the basics that we don't master the basics. So therefore, it's more difficult to grow in those deeper things. Am I making sense? 
So where the Apostle Paul is concerned, he actually looked forward to his death. Do you know that? The Apostle Paul actually looked forward to his death. This world, if you read Philippians, you pick up on the idea that this world had lost its hold on the Apostle Paul. And that there was nothing about this world that tethered him to this life any longer. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read to you uh, that passage because I really feel like it's uh, very inspiring. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 24 <clears throat> says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So you just see his dilemma there? He actually wanted to go on and be with God. But he knew that staying around for a while longer would result in more fruitful labor for the people that he ministered to. So there was nothing about this life that tethered him to this world any longer. So perhaps you can see, based upon that, why the resurrection of the dead was included in the list of elementary doctrines in Hebrews chapter 6, and why it's such a, a strong component of our spiritual foundation. So uh, let's dig a little deeper into this. Well, you're looking there in that picture at a photograph of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which is built around the tomb, believed to be the burial place of Jesus Christ, uh, the tomb out of which he was resurrected. Now, over the past 2,000 years, Christians have surrounded that tomb with a great deal of ornamentation, as you can see there with that picture. But behind the ornamentation is a tomb that is empty. And empty for one reason, because Jesus was raised from the dead. So what does resurrection mean to us then? Well, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and 14, um, and again, this is part of our master text that we will reread here in answering the question, what does resurrection mean? First of all, what does it mean to our salvation? Let's read this again. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is worthless, and so is your faith. So what does the resurrection mean to our faith? Oh, it's basically everything. If there's no resurrection, we have nothing to base our faith on. But I want to dig a little deeper into what uh, the word resurrection actually means, because I want to give you a little bit of insight on this. The word resurrection, translated into English as resurrection, is actually the Greek word anastasis. Anastasis. And it's taken from two Greek words. It's actually a compound word. Taken from two Greek words, the first word being ana, A-N-A. And it means to repeat something or do it again. And the second word is stasis, which means, interestingly enough, to stand to stand. So when you put these two words together to make the compound word anastasis, it means to stand again, to stand upright, or to be raised from the dead. 
And that's significant as this teaching progresses. I'm going to show you why that's significant, not only to our salvation, but also to our lives right here and now. And by the way, that word anastasis is the same word that Jesus used in uh, John 11:25 when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the anastasis and the life. Then Jesus' resurrection therefore, is not limited to the physical realm. See, remember, Jesus is anastasis. That means if you've been knocked down by life, if your emotions have been crushed, if your finances have been negatively impacted, if you're down in any area of your life, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus can cause you to stand up again. Anastasis. See, when Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, by using the word anastasis there, he it was the equivalent of saying, I am stand-up power. He was essentially saying, if you've been knocked down, even if you're dead, even if you're dead, I have the power to put you on your feet again. Jesus was saying, I am the power who causes people to stand up again. I am the power who will raise you back to life. Praise God. In Romans 8.11, it gives us a little bit of a hint of that. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it does... Just think about that statement for a moment. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, it does. The same power, the Bible says, that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work within you. The Bible also says that's an incredibly powerful statement right there. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it does, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And it's not just talking about the resurrection of the dead later on. It's talking about your anastasis right here and now. You know, I was talking to a couple of friends this week and, and we were just having some fellowship and the subject came up about how difficult divorce is. And one of those gentlemen said that his previous divorce almost killed him. But here he is, standing upright again and living a fruitful life in Christ because Jesus has become his anastasis, his resurrection. And now he's standing up again and growing fruitful in the Lord in spite of everything else. Isn't that wonderful? Folks, listen, it's glorious to know that Jesus will one day raise your physical body from the dead. That's a glorious truth right there. But you also need to know that if you've been flattened by life, uh, Jesus is your resurrection right here and now. See, as you embrace him and embrace his grace, he'll put you on your feet again because he is anastasis. He is stand-up power. Yeah? He is resurrection itself. He is stand-up power. His power is sufficient 
to raise you up and help you to stand strong in the midst of every single battle you might face. Hallelujah. Amen. And that's why, by the way, folks, Jesus' resurrection power is relevant for the present, not just your resurrection and your salvation, your resurrection later on in your salvation of your soul right here and now, but in every respect, in every area of your life, he is your anastasis. He is your stand-up power right here and now. On that note, I want to transition the thoughts here and talk about the cornerstone of our faith. Because a lot of people would say, well, the cross is the cornerstone of our faith. Now, don't throw tomatoes at me right now, because I know that a lot of people would say, well, the cross is the cornerstone of our faith. Well, I would counter that, folks, the, the Romans crucified thousands of people on crosses. But there was only one of those people that was raised from the dead. So the cross, while very, very important, obviously, is not the cornerstone of our faith. Because if Jesus would have stayed dead, we would not have a living faith. Again, the cross is very important as, as an element of our faith, but it's the, the resurrection that's the cornerstone of our faith. Plus, I just think it's a little bit more difficult to hang an emblem of an empty tomb around your neck as a, as a symbol, you know, rather than, a, <laughs> rather than the crosses, you know, right? The, the crosses are just a lot easier, I guess. So from an aesthetics and jewelry standpoint, crosses are easier than an empty tomb, but as far as the cornerstone of our faith is concerned, it's the empty tomb. It's the resurrection. Praise God. So that being said, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, once again, part of our master text, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is worthless and so is your faith. So once again, it's the resurrection that is the cornerstone of our faith. And then in 2 Timothy 1.10, it goes on to say, And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. So once again, he broke the power of death. Once again, exemplifying or, or amplifying the fact that it's the resurrection that is the cornerstone of our faith. Praise God. But in this teaching, since we're talking about the resurrection, I want to give you a little bit of insight on the three future resurrections. And again, this is part of what we have to master uh, our understanding of if we are, are to go on to maturity. Once again, the writer of Hebrews says that if you, we want to go on to maturity, then we need to get past, master and then get past these elementary doctrines of the faith. In other words, the resurrection of the dead is elementary school Christianity. It's elementary school Christianity, as are the, the doctrine of baptisms and all the other things that we looked at in, uh, and are still looking at in Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, once again, that's the whole purpose for this series, building a firm foundation. Without these fundamental elementary school doctrines, we can't go on to master the deeper things of God. So that's why this is so important. All right, before we talk about the three future resurrections, let me give you a scriptural reference for where I'm going with this. John 
5, verses 28 through 29 says this, The hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or another, some of the other translations say the resurrection of damnation. Now, folks, there is going to be a resurrection of the righteous. In other words, those who are saved by faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. There will be a resurrection of those of us who are in that category. But Jesus also told us of another kind of resurrection for those who have done evil and who have rejected the saving grace of Jesus Christ and died in that condition. And he called it again the resurrection of judgment or the resurrection of damnation. And this truth about two different kinds of people, two different groups of people, um, and the, the resurrections of these two different groups of people are taught all throughout Scripture. But when will these future resurrections take place? All right, that's what we're going to talk about. By the way, um, you've heard me say before, and I still consider this to be the, the fact, uh, the, the truth, where I'm concerned, that I do not consider myself an expert on end times prophecy. Uh, and I've never taught on it before because I don't consider myself an expert on it because you look at some people who say that I am an expert in end times prophecy and they've studied it all their lives and they'll have an opinion and then somebody else will come along who studied it for 30 years and they have a totally different opinion and you have 10 different people in that category who might have 10 different opinions. And I go, okay, well, I guess that makes me a pan-millennialist then. I just believe it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> but I know this, a pan-millennialist, just, it'll all pan out in the end. But I know that maybe is a little bit of a cop-out, or some people would, would, would say that that. So it's interesting that as I've embarked upon this series in Hebrews chapter 6, that, that the Lord has had me talk about three different things that I've never really wanted to talk about. <laughs> uh, so the Lord stretches us pastors as he does with all of us. So uh, I'm going to talk about some end times prophecy and the resurrection of the dead this morning as I understand it. And I would just encourage you to go study this out on your own as well. All right. So the first resurrection then is the rapture occurs at the rapture of the church. So let me give you a scriptural basis upon that. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 14 through 17. I'm going to give you a lot, lot of scripture today. Uh, almost every slide I have has scripture on it, and it's, it's a big portion of scripture. So bear with me. I'm just going to give you not Andy's opinion, but what the Word of God says and, and, and how I'm interpreting it, okay? So let's read this passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 14 through 17. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died in him. Verse 15, by the word of the Lord, we declare to you that we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be the first to rise. After that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right, so notice that it says in verse 16 that the dead in Christ will rise first. Here then is the declaration of the resurrection of the righteous at the moment of the rapture. So even these old dead decaying bodies as they're laid to their final rest in the grave uh, won't stay there. Okay? These old dead decaying bodies won't be left in the grave. And why does it say, by the way, to comfort one another with these words? Well, because it gives us hope that uh, this life isn't the end. And the lives that we live here on earth in Christ aren't in vain. That's the hope that it gives us. Am I right? So God sees and rewards your future or your current labor. God sees and rewards your labor in Christ. And um, he'll surely reward you for that. And you'll take part in his resurrection. And your resurrected body, by the way, will be glorious because it will be glorified with Christ. Aren't you happy about that? Praise God. No more, uh, what, do they, what, what, what do they call, there's a term that they use for when the, the stomach hangs over the belt, the muffin top. No more muffin tops. Hallelujah. No more bald spots, praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> no, more cro- no more crow's feet. No more, what do they call these, chicken necks or something? What, what is that? Turkey necks. No, no more of that. No more of that. No, no more lack of energy. You'll have abounding energy. No more aches and pains. You'll have a glorified body. Hallelujah. And, <laughs> and there are many references in Scripture to that truth, by the way. But for the sake of time, let's move on to the second resurrection. Now, <clears throat> the Bible is very clear about that first resurrection of the righteous that we just looked at. Uh, at the moment of the rapture. But scripture also reveals that there will be a second resurrection of the righteous, which occurs at the end of the great tribulation. And that future event is found in Revelation 20, a book that I never wanted to preach from, but here I am doing it. Thanks, God. Okay. No, he's, he stretches us, so it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with being stretched. All right. So that future event that I talk about is in Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. Here we go. Then I saw the thrones, and those who seated on them had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands." And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years were complete. This is the first resurrection. Now, in these two verses, um, we find two resurrections. The second resurrection is mentioned in verse 4, which is the resurrection of the righteous at the end of the tribulation. Then verse 5 goes on to mention the first resurrection, which occurs just before the great white throne judgment. And uh, we can understand this better, by the way, um, as we look into the third resurrection. So 
these first two resurrections will come together as we look at now the third resurrection. So let's look again at the uh, verses 4 and 5 in Revelation chapter 20, which again says, The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years were complete. Well, who are the rest of the dead? Who's that referring to here? Yeah, these are, yeah, I think I heard some of you say it. These are the unrighteous who did not die in faith and who will be summoned out of their graves as well. Uh, Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15, goes on to tell about this third and final resurrection. So let's read that together as well. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And there were open books, and one of them was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their deeds, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, and each one was judged according to his deeds." Then death and Hades, or hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone was found whose name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in this final resurrection, the unsaved will be summoned to be judged before that great white throne judgment. And... I just have to speak a sober truth to you today, ladies and gentlemen, and let you know that the unsaved people, if they stay that way, and they don't repent before the time of their death, you know, God can redeem anybody, by the way, and he's willing to redeem anyone. But the unsaved who continue to reject Christ are destined for the torment of an eternal hell. I just can't candy coat that. There's just no way to candy coat that. That's what the Bible teaches. And I realize it's no longer considered culturally correct to say that what the Bible says about this, that those who reject Christ will go to hell. But this is what the Bible teaches. And we're obligated to speak the truth about it. And I'm not talking about you going out and preaching a hellfire and brimstone message. People need to understand the love of Christ and the grace of God. But grace without judgment doesn't have any... See, people don't appreciate the grace until they understand judgment. People don't appreciate the cure to a disease until they appreciate how awful the disease is they've been diagnosed with. Does that make sense? Okay? The same is true here. People don't appreciate the grace of God until they understand what grace really saves them from and how dire their situation is apart from the grace of God. So I heard Ray Comfort one time, who's an evangelist, uh, The Way of the Master. Have any of you ever seen Ray Comfort's work? Yeah. He says, you ought to preach 90% law and 10% grace. Because if you preach 90% Law, by the time you get to grace, they'll be ready for the grace. But if you just preach grace, 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 and no law, no judgment, no damnation, people are like, well, yeah, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. Me and God are on good terms. So, yeah, God already loves me. I'm already on my way to heaven. Of course, they may be living totally pagan lives. They think they're on good terms with God because they don't understand that they've smashed God's law into a thousand pieces and have continued to do so, and they can't get to heaven based upon their good merits. 
They think that their good deeds are going to outweigh their bad deeds and because they're better than Joe Schmo down the street who they don't like very well, well I'm not doing as bad as, as, as him, I'm doing okay. See, that's not the gospel message, is it? Okay, we'll talk more about that next week when we talk about um, eternal judgment. That's the last in uh, the doctrines that we'll discuss in Hebrews chapter 6. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. We'll cover that more next week. But uh, this should motivate us, by the way, to preach the gospel message to those who are perishing, ladies and gentlemen. See, we need to know as a church and as people of God, we need to know what the Bible says about the resurrection of the dead because it is foundational to our faith. It's a fundamental doctrine to our faith. It's crucial for us to understand that regardless of whether someone has rejected or accepted Christ, every person who has ever lived is going to be raised in one of these three resurrections. And as for you and me, if Jesus tarries, we have to be prepared for the fact that there's going to be a funeral in our future one day. And if there's a funeral in our future, it's essential for us to confidently know what lies ahead beyond our funeral at the time of our death. And thank God for the anchor of hope that he's given us, that for those of us who die in Christ, there is a glorious resurrection that awaits us. Praise God. Now, before we close, and I know this is a little bit of a shorter teaching this morning, but there wasn't a whole lot of life applications like I usually like to give, but I'm just giving you a doctrine today. I'm just giving you a doctrine because doctrine is important to our faith as well, isn't it? So before we close, um, I want to make one last reference to the first resurrection and the rapture of the church. And this is one application point that we can take with us. So there's just one simple application point that we can take with us today as we understand the resurrection from the dead. And that is to be watchful and ready. That's to be watchful and ready. So I'm going to read to you out of Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says, no one knows about that day or hour. He's talking about his return. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard and stay alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man going on a journey who left his house, put each servant in charge of his own task, and instructed the doorkeeper to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know when the master of the house will return, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Otherwise, he may arrive without notice and find you sleeping. And what I say to you I say to everyone, keep watch. Keep watch. My mother used to have a saying, she's in heaven now. So she's, uh, I'll see her again in the resurrection. She used to have a saying when I was growing up that went like this. Plan like you're going to die tomorrow. I'm sorry, well, I got, got it wrong. Sorry, mom. No, she said, 
um, plan like you're going to live forever, but live like you're going to die tomorrow. Let me say that again. Plan like you're going to live forever, but live like you're going to die tomorrow. Be watchful and ready at all times. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.